I'm ready to jump into the service this morning. We are in a series entitled Entrusted, and in this series we are discussing how we are to manage the resources that God brings into our care. Now, when we say resources, we need to understand that we're talking about more than money, but every single asset that God brings to you, that can be your time, that can be the skill set, the talent that he's given you, and yes, it can even be your treasure, your finances, your home, your vehicles. How are you using the things that God has entrusted you to advance his kingdom and to bless someone else's life? Now, I told you last week that I truly believe the day is going to be one of those days that we will not forget. Forgive me for being a little bit stoked in this message this morning because I want to get to the altar call because today we're going to bless someone and we're going to see their life change. And I believe in the process, it's going to be a blessing to us. You know what's amazing about generosity is that it ultimately changes people's lives. Generosity is what changed our lives. Jesus's generosity towards us, his benevolence towards us by dying on the cross for us changed our eternal trajectory. But you can also change someone's life on earth by your generosity generosity to them. I have shared this story many times, but for our context of the message today, it's worth sharing again. There was a time right after Charity and I got married that I lost my job. It was in western Oklahoma when the oil field crashed. No one had employment. No one had jobs. I thought, well, it'd be no big deal. I will go down to Walmart. I'll find a job somewhere. I know it's not going to pay what the welding shop was paying, but we'll figure it out in the meantime. When Walmart is not hiring, you know that there is, a, there is an overabundance of labor in the, the labor force. And so here we are. We've been married for six months, and now we don't have jobs. And that can be incredibly stressful. And so there was a day that I went out to the mailbox, and when I opened up the mailbox, it was a car in there with no name on it, and in that card there was 50 bucks. Now, was $50 going to pay the rent? Nope. Was $50 going to buy groceries? Not a whole lot of them. But you know what that $50 communicated to me? That God saw me in my time of need. Now, that, re- that, that response from my heart was because somebody was obedient. And I didn't know who that somebody was. And they did that for several weeks in a row, $50 at a time, in a card, in my mailbox. And what that $50 told me was that God was watching me, and it caused me to lift up praise to him. And there have been seasons, I'm sure, in your life where somebody blessed you, where they went above and beyond for you, and that caused worship, it caused praise to come out of your heart towards God because you knew that God saw you in your circumstance. Now, there has also been times that Charity and I have had the opportunity to bless someone else. And you know what we do in that moment? We praise God in that moment. Why? Because God brought the resources in our life to bless someone else, and we were thankful to be a part of that blessing in their life. So if you're on the receiving end of blessing, there is praise. And if you're on the giving end of blessing, there is praise. And so true generosity does several things. First off, it gives us a picture of who God is. Second, it causes praise and worship to come from our hearts. And third, it changes people's lives, either ours or someone else. That is the power of generosity. And that is why we are in this series this morning. So with that, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 9. 2 Corinthians chapter number 9. It's a short little chapter, and we're going to read the whole thing together this morning. I'll give you time to turn your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter number 9. 
Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that they're in Achaia, that they're ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said that you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead of you to arrange in advance the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as extraction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound in you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely and has given to the poor his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which though through you will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of their service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contributions for them. For all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, if you were here last week, we know that we started discussing what generosity looks like from a biblical standpoint. In the previous passage, Paul has made a case for generosity, and in this passage, he's going to continue to challenge the people to be generous, and he talks about the results of generosity. Just as a reminder to the context of this passage, Paul is writing to a local church, and they have committed a generous offering to the believers in Jerusalem who have fallen on hard times. Now, it's important to understand the context. They're taking up an offering for other people in a part of the world that they will never meet, they will never probably encounter this side of heaven, and they're taking up that offering simply because those people have a need in their life. When the Corinthians made this commitment, they were super excited to participate. They were zealous to give towards these people, but apparently, when we read between the lines of this passage, their zeal has started to wane, and they are not wanting to finish their commitment, so Paul is challenging them. He says, you made a commitment and now you need to keep that commitment. These people are still in need. You inspired others and now you need to fulfill that commitment that, was ma- that you made towards these people. And so today we are going to walk through this passage and we're going to look at this commitment 
and we're going to see the results of generosity. When we participate in generosity, this Bible verse, this passage gives us the results, the repercussions, what will come from our generosity. And the first thing I want you to see is, is that generosity will result in inspiration. When you read verses one through five, it seems a little bit, uh, a little bit cumbersome. It's, it seems a little bit odd, but here's what he says in verse number four. Otherwise, if some of the Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead of you to arrange in advance the gift that you promised so that it will be a willing gift. Here's what we need to understand. This first point is going to be short, but it's important to notice. What Paul was telling them is, look, when you were zealous to be generous, we told people in Macedonia who were poor, they didn't have any money, hey, the Corinthians are going to give towards this need in Jerusalem. And your zeal inspired them to give above and beyond their needs. Now, if they come and they see that you, who inspired them to give, are not participating in that giving with them, that's going to be embarrassing for you. You are the ones that started this whole thing. And here's what we need to see. The point that I want to pull for us is this, is that generosity inspires generosity. Here's something we know to be true. We mimic the people that we associate with. When we watch someone be generous, it inspires generosity in our life. And when we are generous towards other people, it can inspire the people that you're with. Here's a simple way you can see this in your own life. The people that you consistently go eat out with, I guarantee you, if they're good tippers, you're probably a good tipper. And if you're a stingy tipper, they tend to be a stingy tipper. Why? Because you tend to inspire one another in your generosity or the lack thereof. Generosity is contagious. How many of you remember the old school pie auctions at church to raise money for camps or Man, I love stuff like that. I like to go to those pie auctions, uh, not because I had deep enough pockets to participate. I would vote. I, would, I mean, I'd bid the first time every time because it started a dollar. I got a dollar, you know, five dollars. Man, I can maybe stretch for five. If it's a really good pie, maybe ten. But those pies would go to four or five hundred dollars. Well, I was a youth pastor. I was poor. I didn't have that kind of money. I have to sell a kidney or something, and they tell me you're not supposed to do that. So I would not participate in the pie auction, but I would go because people were generous at the pie auction. They would come, this was, we had so much fun doing this. They had a pie auction and somebody would in, inevitably go buy a gallon of milk. And so you'd have the pie auction, four or $500 for this pie. Well, you can't take four or five pies home. So they start cutting it up and I would sit there and I would just receive the blessing of someone else's generosity. You'd have the milk, you'd have the pie and I just eat it. Now here's the point of that. You guys have probably all participated in those type of auctions. Nobody goes there looking for a deal on a pie. Everybody goes there looking to be generous, and that bidding, right, stirs up generosity and inspires us to give more. Generosity is contagious when we all practice generosity. However, generosity can only be contagious when we follow through. This is where the Corinthians are starting to get into the weeds. They had to make the commitment, but they were not willing to finish. And so what Paul was telling them is he said, look, no one's going to force you to give. But if you're going to say that you're going to, and you're going to inspire everyone else to give, then you better follow through or don't commit to begin with. He said, no one's going to twist your arm into this. No one wants to take this by exaction. We want, to, you, we want you to be generous, but don't say that you're going to do it and then not follow through. 
Because you might inspire somebody and you can crush their generosity by your fake zeal in the beginning. Second, generosity will result in a cheerful heart. Verse 6 through 9 says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound in you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely and he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. God's desire in our giving is that we should give generously, with a cheerful heart. That is the line I want you to zone in on for a second. God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Does God need your money? Does God need my money? Does God need us to do anything for him? No, God loves a cheerful giver because he is a giver. God loves a cheerful giver because it, it, it resembles his nature and his likeness. Paul tells us in this passage that God has distributed freely and he has given to the poor. We were poor, and we were in need, and God in his extravagant grace has given us everything we need. The scripture says of Jesus that when he gave his life as a ransom on the cross for our sins, that it was for joy set before him that he carried the cross. As Christ gave his life, he didn't do it grudgingly. Rather, he did it with joy in his heart, because he knew the results of his giving, namely the redemption of our souls. So Christ loves a cheerful giver. Therefore, the goal in generosity is cheerfulness in our hearts. And it's my observation that generous people tend to be joyful people. I've never met a generous person who is consistently a grouch. Why? Because generosity can only flow from a place of joy inside of our hearts. Only a joyful person, only a cheerful person can walk in extravagant giving because of the extravagance that Christ has done inside of their hearts. Only when a person is at peace, knowing that Christ supplies all of their needs, can they be open-handed with any possession that they have in their life. If you're constantly living in fear, if you're constantly worried that everything's going to collapse around you, then you're going to hold tight-fisted to what you have in life. But if you know that Christ supplies every single one of your needs, then you can be open-handed because you know if you give something that God himself is the one that supplied it in your life and that he'll supply what you need tomorrow. How do we get to this point where we, our giving is, results in joy? Well, Paul gives us some insight. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Our generosity should come from a prompted spirit, not under compulsion or guilt. You want to practice generosity? Just set in your heart something and say, God, what would you have me to do? Maybe 20, maybe 30, maybe 100 bucks. And you just put it in your pocket. Or if you're a lady, put it in your purse. If you're a man and you have a purse, that's a whole other conversation, whatever you need to do. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> moving on. All right. Put it wherever you carry your money. All right. And just walk through life and say, God, prompt my spirit when you want me to give this to somebody. You might be standing there filling up your truck and you, the person on the other side, God says, hey, buy their gas. Give them that money. It might be at the grocery store line. It might be when you're at the drive-thru and you pay for the person. Just say, God, what would you have me to do? Put it in your pocket and give it when he tells you to. 
and watch if there doesn't come joy from your heart. Why? Because it's a decidedness in your heart. When you're to be generous to individuals or you're to meet a need of a nonprofit or even to the church, you need to have a decided heart. What does it mean to have a decided heart? Through prayer, say, God, what would you have me to do? And listen to the voice of the Lord. Don't listen to the voice of whoever's on the platform. Now, I might stand up here on this platform. I might say, church, we have an opportunity to be generous, and I'm asking you to pray. You need to pray, but if you don't feel prompted, then don't give. Why? Because the scripture says that we need to do it from a decided heart, not from a place of guilt or obligation. We do it from a place of knowing where Jesus has changed our life and we listen to him and we're obedient to him. As a pastor, one of my responsibilities is to filter the needs to this church. We have people weekly who call the church and say, hey, we have a need. And the reality is we can't meet every single need of every single organization in the United States. You would be surprised at how many people call the church, missionaries and nonprofit organizations, and a lot of them are doing good work. But our church can't meet every single one of those needs, and it's my responsibility to filter that to partner with you. Now, here's the deal. You can, I can have guilt in that, or I can listen to the Lord and say, God, what do you want us to partner with? The fact of the matter is that God has sowed seed in this church, and he's brought resources to this church, and we are to steward those things and to resource those. And so stewarding those things as a pastor means that I weigh it, and I say, God, what do you want us to do? And when my heart is prompted, that's something we get behind. I had a missionary call me this week, and it prompted my heart. This guy's going to Israel. And I'm sitting here as he's talking to me, and I instantly like his personality, and he says, I'm going to Israel. And I'm thinking to myself, why do we need missionaries in Israel? I was like, that's where all this thing started. And before I could ask the question, he said, you're probably sitting there thinking, why do we need missionaries in Israel? I'm thinking, well, yeah, I am actually. And uh, he said, well, you know, this guy, I like this guy. This guy, is, he's in his 40s, and, um, and he, he didn't start out in ministry. He had a really good job. He, he didn't tell me it was a good job, but he told me where he worked, and I put it to, it was a good job. And God called him to, God called him to be a missionary. And so him, he has four daughter's stair stacked like this, you know, and him and his wife said, we're going to Israel. Now, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but they're want, launching rockets over there currently. And so he says, we're going to Israel. And I, so anyways, he said, you might be thinking, why do we need missionaries in Israel? He said, because less than one half of 1% of people living in Israel are actually Christians. He said, there's a high probability that they will live their whole life and never even encounter a Christian. And I said, how's that possible with all the tourism of Christians to the Holy Land? He said, exactly. He said, unless you are in the, touring, uh, the, the tourist type of economy over there, unless you have a job that's related to that, he said, you'll never encounter a Christian in your life if you are born in Israel. And he said, he said the other fact is, he said, they're really not Jewish. They're Jewish in name only, just kind of like, you know, every Southerner is a Christian. And so he said, we're going we're gonna to go over there and we're going to start a uh, ministry over there. And you know what? That prompted my heart. So we're going to start moving some things around. We're going to get that, that guy on the field the best we can help. Why? Because that prompted my heart. Not every need that comes across can you meet in life. God has brought you certain resources, and you need to steward those resources. So one of the things you need to understand, if somebody's giving you an opportunity, say, God, are you prompting my heart? And if God isn't prompting your heart, then don't feel guilty about saying no. He'll prompt your heart on something else. And this church, if it doesn't prompt your heart, here in just a few moments, we're going to give you an opportunity. If your heart's prompted, then participate. If it's not, then don't. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. And it's between, completely between you and the Lord. And what you will do when you are prompted by the Lord and you're obedient, you know what happens? Cheerfulness stirs up in your heart. 
It's cool. It feels good. It feels good. It feels good. So don't walk in guilt. Walk in a decided heart. Third thing, generosity will result in a harvest. Verse 6 through 11. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely and given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. We must understand that God's word is clear on sowing and reaping. Now, we're going to dive into that concept deeply next week, and so you want to be here next week because there's a lot of practical things about sowing and reaping all throughout the Bible. However, from a 30,000-foot view, here's what we have to understand. Every good thing comes from God above. Matthew 5.45 tells us that God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous just the same. If you're outside and it's raining and you're a saint, praise God. If you're outside and it's raining and you're a sinner, God's blessing you anyways. So all the stuff that we work for and accumulate belongs to the Lord. Now, there might be some pushback, and you might say, but I worked for the things I had. That's probably true. But God gifted you with the able body to work. What if you were born with no legs? You might not have been able to work as hard, could you? What if you weren't born with a mind and a sound mind who could produce the work? Who knows? What if you were born in a third world country and not in America? Oh, I thought I'd get more of an amen than that. The point is this. God has blessed us with every resource in our life. And God intends for us to use those as resources to produce harvest of righteousness. We all have things we love. We all have our favorite possessions in life. However, we need to see everything that we own, everything that's come into our possession as a seed that God has placed in our life. Every resource, every time, every talent, every treasure you have is a seed. Now, if I was to give you a bag of seeds, what would be the logical thing for you to do? Plant a seed. Why? Because you understood that if you were to put the seed in the ground, that the fruit, the vegetables, the harvest that would come from those seeds would be considerably more than the bag of seeds themselves. It'd be foolish if I went to Rhonda Sloan and I gave her a bag of seeds. Now, she knows how to grow things, not to charity. Charity would kill all of them, as she told us a few weeks ago. I can testify to that truth. But if I was to give it to Rhonda, Rhonda could produce a crop and a harvest from that. It would be foolish for Rhonda, and we'd all scratch our heads if we gave it to Rhonda, and she went and put the bag of seeds on the shelf somewhere and let them start to decompose. It's foolish to hold on to the things that God has given us in life so tight-fisted that he can't use them to produce a harvest in our own life. God has supplied the seed. The question is, where are you going to sow? Where are you going to take the time that he has supplied you and sow it for his glory? Where are you going to take the resources, the possessions that he has given you, and sown them for his glory? Where are you going to take the talent that he has given you to reflect his purpose for you in life? Here is the reality. What this passage makes very clear is that God will never force you to sow. You have the option to sow or not. Notice that God wasn't commanding them to sow seeds. He was placing the ball in their court, and then there was some consequences 
for their actions. If they sowed sparingly, they were going to reap sparingly. If they sowed bountifully, they would reap bountifully. Here's the assurance. When you sow generosity, there's always a return on the investment. This passage makes it clear that God supplies with all sufficiency at all times with all things. You don't believe me, go find someone who tithes and then talk to them about God's supply. I don't have to tell you about it, they will. Why? Because God is faithful time and time and time again. Here's the picture that I think God wants us to see. He intends for us to be a conduit for his kingdom. When he brings resources, he expects us to be open-handed with them and to be fruitful with them and to invest them. Then generosity produces and puts us in a position to be more generous because he says, when you sow, then you have a harvest to do what? To be more generous. Now, some of you are wondering, man, I have a need in my own life. I have a need in my own life. How in the world can I be open-handed when I have such a need in my own life? What we see from this passage is that when we're open-handed, God starts to bring a pathway. Now, it's important not to get the wrong idea. I might sow financially, but I might not always reap the rewards that way. There are people who will stand up on the platform and say, look, this is why you got to be careful who you let speak into your life. If you have a $100 need in your life, you need to sow $10, and God will bring you the $100. I'm not going to tell you that, because he may or he may not. I don't know. That's called manipulation. And we don't want to manipulate. Here's what I do know is that God supplies the need. I've seen that in my own life when I've been faithful to God. I will never promise you that if, you, if you're generous to the person in the grocery store or you're generous to the nonprofit that comes knocking on your door that God's going to give you a new car or a new house. What I will promise you is that God will bring you more things to be more generous. Sometimes a reward is righteousness. Sometimes the reward is longevity of your current possessions. My youth pastor was a lady and her husband was a mechanic. And Charity had this Chevy Cavalier and it just had way more miles on it than it should have to keep running. And Dan, every time Dan walk out and see that Chevy Cavalier, he say, Austin, this car is evidence that tithing works because it should be dead. <laughs> that car got, I mean, way more. And Charity used to, it's a little four cylinder your lawnmower has a bigger engine than this Cavalier did. She got pulled over one time going 95 or something in a 65. I mean, so she drove this thing hard. <laughs> that did happen, right? Yeah, two days in a row? Yeah. Yeah, two days in a row. <laughs> I'm on the pulpit in church. I would not lie to you. Fourth, generosity leads to praise. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saint, but also the overflowing of many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession to the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all the others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Generosity leads to praise. I mean, these people in Jerusalem needed a miracle. Imagine you're on the receiving end of a miracle. You give God praise. You're like, God, thank you for meeting my need. Say you had a $100 bill that you couldn't afford to pay. and Probably all of us were there sometime. And somebody randomly gave you a $100 bill. What do you do? You praise God. Because he met your need. 
what better investment, what a better way to invest your resources than to place it somewhere that ultimately leads praise to the one who saved you and set you free. If my calling can be to be someone's miracle in their life, then what higher calling can any of us have? God's calling you to be someone's miracle. What higher calling can you have?